PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. Eclipse is a comprehensive all-in-one system that handles your billing, scheduling, and clinical documentation. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. I think if we have a better understanding of what is different between our young adults that we're working with and our older adults that we're working with, that gives us a framework then to be a better clinician. Because if people in science or academia have a hard time understanding what's fatigue, your patient will most likely have a hard time understanding what's fatigue. Welcome to this PTJ discussion podcast, Age-Related Differences in Muscle Fatigue. In August 2011, PTJ published a meta-analysis with a very counterintuitive result. For some contraction types, older adults displayed greater relative intensity task endurance than younger adults. The two authors of this meta-analysis, Dr. Laura Fry-Law and Dr. Keith Aven, both of the University of Iowa, joined PTJ editorial board member Dr. Carolyn Patton to discuss the research and clinical implications of their paper. And now, our moderator, Carolyn Patton. Good afternoon. Today with me are Dr. Laura Fry-Law, who is an associate professor at the University of Iowa in the graduate program in physical therapy and rehab sciences and Dr. Keith Avon, who is a PhD candidate also in the graduate program in physical therapy and rehab sciences at the University of Iowa. We're going to be discussing their recently published meta-analysis titled Age-Related Differences in Muscle Fatigue Vary by Contraction Type. And so, welcome to you, Laura and Keith. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, to kick off, let's go first with Keith. If you could give us just a quick synopsis, a brief overview of this study, and help us understand what we're talking about here. We wanted to identify fatigue differences between the older adult and the younger adult. There's been a lot of data out there, but none of it yet has been synthesized and aggregated to figure out in a meta-analysis what differences there are in fatigue resistance between the older and young adult. So we performed a systematic review where we included fatigue studies, and we can talk a little bit later about what fatigue means and different interpretations of fatigue across contraction type. So for an isometric, an intermittent, or an isokinetic contraction, is the older adult more fatigue resistant than the young adult? We try to account for variables such as sex, intensity, and joint. And overall, we found that the older adult is more fatigue resistant than the younger adult specifically for isometric and intermittent isometric contractions, but there was a loss of an age-related advantage once you go to a dynamic task, and in this study, specifically an isokinetic task. Thank you. If we could shift over to Laura, I'd like to ask you, what was the motivation for this? Why do we, why do we care about this? Um, I think there's a couple of reasons why we might care about this. One, I think the more we understand basic differences across the lifespan, I think we're better able to make evidence-based choices when we're dealing with our patients and when we're evaluating them, when we're choosing what kind of treatments we're going to ask them to be participating in. So I think if we have a better understanding of what is different between our young adults that we're working with and our older adults that we're working with, that gives us a framework then to be a better clinician so that. I think it's our basic reason for looking at it. 
although it's not a clinical study per se, it's to give us the science behind some of our rationale that we might use once we go to a clinical situation. Okay. One of the things I think is really important for us to talk about early on is this concept of fatigue and this definition of fatigue, because I think it's one of those words that means many things to many people. One of the things I very much enjoyed about the introduction to your paper was the way that you dichotomize the difference between one's perception of being fatigued or being tired or perhaps maybe not effective at doing movements versus the much more clearly defined physiological definition of fatigue. And I'd like both of you perhaps to take turns and give us a primer, if you will, on what are the most important concepts in fatigue that we need to understand physiologically and how they impact our decision-making in the clinical setting. I think one of the problems with language is we have one word that probably describes multiple phenomenon. And unfortunately, we don't have a great way of differentiating between these different types of fatigue, as you mentioned. There's surveys out there that are fatigue assessments that are essentially asking people, how tired do you feel? How difficult is it to do activities? And that's kind of what we meant by that perceptual fatigue, that that feeling you may have of just feeling like you don't have the energy to do something, you might feel tired, and it's almost more of a psychological construct. So if we asked you to do a muscle fatigue task, you may be fully able to do it, but you just may not feel like you want to do it. On the other hand, what we are dealing with is really what sometimes people will call a localized muscle fatigue. So we're looking at data that has assessed specifically a small group of muscles, usually around one joint. And then another level of fatigue that we're not talking about, but also is a sense of physiologic fatigue, is that fatigue when you do the whole body activity, it may almost be more of an aerobic fatigue, like when you're jogging and you feel like you don't have enough energy to keep going. And I think that is an important differentiation that for our paper, we were focusing on localized muscle fatigue, but it's not to diminish the importance of those other types of fatigue as well. So I'll ask a follow-up question. So either one of you, you're working with a patient who says, oh, well, I'm fatigued. And yet, as clinicians, we know we have outcomes we've got to produce. The goal may, in fact, be to improve their endurance and their complaining of fatigue. So it becomes all the more important that we understand what these different constructs are and how to differentiate them. And so how would you advise a clinician to listen to patients when they're complaining of fatigue and balancing that against their actual performance? Yeah, I think the first thing whenever dealing with fatigue is much like Laura explained the different types of fatigue is to understand the context in which you're asking your patient. So you're talking about fatigue during daily activities, fatigue during a specific activity. What's the type of fatigue? Because if people in science or academia have a hard time understanding what's fatigue, your patient will most likely have a hard time understanding what's fatigue. So the first thing would be to, one, understand the context in which you're under And two, understanding capabilities, and that's what we're trying to do right now by this meta-analysis, is understanding what the capability of the older adult is. And if the perception by many is that the older adult is not more fatigue-resistant, well, hopefully a study like this, they can start to have a better match between appropriate interventions and capabilities of the older adult. Yeah, I think the only thing I would add is I think we still have a lot of research to do to really understand the differences it would be almost easier if we had two different words to describe those rather than them both being fatigue 
because I think they are different constructs. And so I believe that by assessing both, not that one's more important, but one's talking about capability and the other one's more almost to the level of a symptom. And so it may be that you are doing an intervention to deal with a symptom of perceptual fatigue, which you may choose different interventions for that than if you're actually dealing with the fact that they're really not able to maintain some force to be able to maintain some task ability. Then you might be dealing more at the sort of physiologic level that we've been talking about or dealing with both. That's good. And it's not an easy answer. Okay. Um, You present to us really some very paradoxical results. I think at least paradoxical from our expectations. The literature is all over the place, and part of what you were trying to sort out through this article was making some sense of that literature that's all over the place. And you basically broke it down into three categories, two flavors of isometric contractions, sustained and intermittent, and then also dynamic contractions. Dynamic contractions in all but one case were isokinetic. You're surprised that the intermittent isometrics showed the greatest age-related differences, and you had your hypothesis for that. If we could take that and extend it into the clinical setting to the best of our ability, how might that inform people in the clinic? I think um, when you look at intermittent isometric or isokinetic and you're trying to apply it clinically, you can really gain an advantage from a task where some people see it as a simple post-op intervention where I'm going to give somebody isometrics until they can advance to an isokinetic. But it may be that we may have an opportunity to enhance capability in the muscle by maintaining an intermittent isometric exercise in our interventions. Now, it may not be that all exercises are intermittent from here on out, but it may be a component that if the older adult has a greater advantage, including that in an intervention may help increase their capabilities with the training program. So do you have any ideas why these differences in contraction type might occur? So the reason why the older adult may be more fatigue resistant would really depend on a few things. One is the preferential shift towards fiber type. So with the older adult having more type 1 fibers, it may allow them in an isometric task to sustain a task longer, but there's a disassociation of power once you go into more of the dynamic tasks, and that's explaining some of the age-related loss. We weren't necessarily able to delve too much into that in our meta-analysis, mainly because of a lack of multiple velocities at the isokinetic. But from the small numbers we saw, we didn't see any velocity-dependent effect sizes there. Another possibility is that the older adult has a preferential utilization of oxidative phosphorylation pathways, and so the younger adult may be using more glycolytic pathways when the older adult is using oxidative, kind of prolonging their ability to maintain a contraction. Another area could be related to blood flow in that there's a decrease in blood flow in the periphery during a dynamic task, and that may explain why during a dynamic task the older adult is not maintaining this fatigue advantage. In a separate paper, it was found that the older adult more metabolically efficient, so it's not really clear how that increased efficiency plays with blood flow and if blood flow really is a contributing factor to this age-related difference. Okay, so... Most of the responses you've given speculate looking at the muscle per se or at metabolic factors or at blood flow, but, uh, you know, you'd be disappointed if I didn't ask this question. What do you think about neural control factors? Do you think that there might be important differences in the neural control that might explain these age-related differences? 
Well, I think there's a several levels when we talk about neural control that probably are important. The interesting thing, I think, though, when we talk about neural control is why a difference between basically a static contraction versus a dynamic contraction. Some might argue that if you're less able to fully activate your muscle, so you have a lower ability to fully contract your muscle, then maybe even when you're doing a relative intensity task, you're underestimating its intensity, and therefore that could explain why older adults see an improved endurance with an isometric test. On the other hand, the fact that we see the difference under one contraction type but not the other, it's not terribly clear if that older adults would be able to more fully contract isokinetically. We already talked about the differences with isokinetics, and one might even assume that it's even more challenging with isokinetics to get a full activation as you age. That could possibly be an argument. So that level of neural control, it's not entirely clear how it would play out and how it could explain this difference. An extension of that is an area that we're looking into, thinking about the task difficulty or sort of the cognitive load of a task. Keith, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about some of the things we might be testing in that area. Yeah, we're interested to see if task complexity influences fatigue. And so some may argue that the isokinetic task is more complex than the isometric task and that the older adult's not able to process it as quickly, and that's kind of leading to the decrease in power. So we're interested in seeing if task complexity has a role in age-related fatigue. Could you talk about that a little bit more by what you mean? I mean, I think it's pretty clear to you what you mean by task complexity, but there's a lot going on these days with talking about cognitive load and aging and many paradigms looking at dual tasking, but is this the contrast between a single joint isometric contraction and turning cartwheels or you know? <laughs> so where we want to begin with this thought process is a single joint um, looking at the elbow performing a single joint isometric sustained task where you're just following a straight line for a given period of time and looking at the fatigue index before and after compared to an isokinetic task where you're doing an isokinetic muscle contraction through a range of motion and looking at a fatigue index so that's the two areas of isometric and isokinetic, and the middle portion would be a complex isometric task where all of the muscle level demands of a simple isometric task are there. So you're in this complex isometric task, you'd be following a sine wave pattern on the screen, and the complexity is in making sure your torque matches the sine wave. So we're really interested in seeing, does the complex isometric task behave more like a simple, or does it behave more like an isokinetic task? And that will give us some window into whether or not complexity can explain a portion of fatigue in this age-related advantage. So that's interesting. And that, of course, has lots of clinical implications for how we might construct rehab programs. Yes? I think it does. And then that may also work towards when we're planning interventions is how complex are we making it? So if complexity proves to be important, which it may or may not, that may help us when we're planning our interventions, understanding the executive function or cognitive load of the tasks that we're asking people to do. That's just a very exciting prospect. I think it has a lot of potential to really inform some important aspects of designing rehab interventions. I'd like to shift gears, if we could, for a minute and talk a bit about the meta-analysis methodology. I wonder if there are any places where you felt you know, what happens when you do a meta-analysis or you do a systematic review is you say, okay, we're going to take papers that meet these inclusion and conditions like this. 
But were there any places where you felt like having done so limited your ability to answer your question or affected Mm. your ability to answer it the way you really wanted to answer it? Right. Well, this was a little bit of a unique meta-analysis in the sense that we weren't doing a clinical intervention. So we didn't have quite the same constraints that you might in a more typical meta-analysis where you have requirements of, say, randomization or blindedness because this is clearly just pulling observational data and trying to use meta-analysis techniques to summate the findings between two groups of individuals. So in some ways, we had it a little bit easier than we would have had we had even more constraints to deal with. But even so, one of the things that we ran into is when setting up your exclusion criteria, you will undoubtedly hit some paper somewhere that is not clearly in or out of your exclusion. So, for example, we excluded fatigue that was generated via electrical stimulation. We wanted voluntary contractions only. However, there were several studies that did voluntary activations to achieve fatigue, but then superimposed with electrical stimulation to assess some other muscle properties. We had to sometimes make a judgment call when was the e-stim done, say, after the fatigue or so infrequently that it should not have had a major effect and it was still clearly a voluntary effort that induced the fatigue versus one that maybe had a fair amount of electrical stimulation coinciding with the voluntary activations. And that's challenging. Those are very good points. And of course, there are things that don't quite surface into the discussion or into the methods of paper. But in fact, you had to make a judgment call And the point I want to make is that doing a meta-analysis isn't for the faint of heart. It's not like you're just going to be able to go through and catalog it and everything is going to fall very neatly into boxes and lo and behold, you're going to have effect sizes and an answer. There still is a fair bit of interpretation and, you know, maybe a few things that give you a little anxiety. Did we make the right decision? Right. It is certainly not an easy way out. Sometimes I get someone who will say, oh, we'll just do a meta-analysis. And I think, oh... Yes, it's a good solution for many questions, but you definitely don't want to assume it will be easy. It is certainly, I would not say, easier than doing, say, your own study where you're controlling all your variables very cleanly. Well, I think that we should make some concluding remarks here and complete our discussion. I'd like to congratulate both of you. I think this is a really nice body of work and really makes a substantial contribution to our literature, and I thank you for submitting it to the PT Journal. But I'd also like to offer you the opportunity to share any additional comments, perhaps things that you really wanted to discuss or some themes that came up while you were working on this, but maybe you just didn't have the space to get them in your paper. If there are any additional insights that you've had. Well, the one thing that comes to my mind that I'd like a moment to mention, and it may be helpful for people, is just that sense that people say, well, no one I know seems to be less fatigable as they get older, is just to remember that this is looking at the muscle properties for relative intensity tasks, which is how we typically will analyze muscle fatigue so that we're standardizing between each individual's capability, their peak strength or their peak torque. But often as we age, studies have shown that peak torque capability or strength starts to decline after as early as 45 and 50. And yet many of the tasks we do every day, like getting out of a chair or going up and down stairs, the forces we need to do those tasks may not change. Or they may even go up a little bit if we keep putting on a little more body weight, which often also happens with age. So just to remind people that while we're seeing these differences with the isometric contractions of improved endurance capabilities with age, 
that's for a given percent of max and that daily activities will often be a higher intensity as we get older than they would have been when we were younger. I think it's a very important point. It's a very important distinction, and it's good to emphasize that. So, Keith, how about you? I think one other thing, as we wrote the systematic review, I was always focusing on, if I took this to an intervention, how to increase fatigue resistance in the older adult. One question is that this may be not a beneficial adaptation, and it may be indicative of a maladaptive process in aging where increased fatigue resistance in an isometric condition is demonstrating a greater fiber type transformation to type 1. And if it's maybe occurring earlier on, it could be even used as a, I don't want to say screening tool, but something to indicate less than ideal aging adaptations. So we're thinking that this is a beneficial effect and something to work towards, but something in the back of our mind is that this may be a negative adaptation in the aging response that we may not want to enhance. All right. Well, thank you both for your time, and I think we'll end there. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Send us your comments or suggestions about this podcast via email, ptj at scienceaudio.net, or voicemail, 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Thanks for listening. 